Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to the Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges affecting Australia and its region. My name is Sue Regan. Uh, what we have today is a very special extra of the Policy Forum Pod, which is on the review that will make Australia's public service fit for the future. Uh, last Thursday, Crawford had the pleasure to co-host the Institute of Public Administration Australia and their future leader leaders series finale. It featured David Williamson, who is head of the team supporting the independent review of the Australian Public Service. Mr. Williamson gave us some first-hand insights into the high expectations and the difficult questions surrounding the review and how the panel intends to address them, something that we didn't want to keep from you all. As our listeners might remember, we've previously thrown the question, is Australia's policy machinery fit for purpose, at Professor Glyn Davis, who is also a member of the APS review panel, and Crawford Director Professor Helen Sullivan. If you're interested, you can listen to that episode on Simplecast, on Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're getting your podcasts from. Our normal pod will be back on Friday, and this time we'll discuss the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide. If you have any comments, ideas, or questions about this topic, you can connect with us on Twitter, where we're Apps Policy Forum, or on Facebook, where we're Asia and the Pacific Policy Society, or you can do it the old-fashioned way and shoot us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. We'd love to hear from you. But back to today's special pod. On this pod, you'll hear David Williamson uh, talking, followed by a discussion chaired by our director, Helen Sullivan, which will also feature Holly Noble, who's a member of the Future Leaders Committee. So let's give it a go and hand over to David. Enjoy. Good afternoon. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Um, firstly, I also want to pay my respect to uh, the traditional custodians of the land we're meeting on this afternoon and uh, to elders past and present. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity to talk to the future leaders. That's who we've got, right? So not everybody, but mostly future leaders. Is that the, that's the demographic. Everyone's a future leader, though, right? Uh, and why... This is a great opportunity is because, as hopefully you've heard, the review of the public service is about the future and, in fact, it's very clearly positioned in the future with a reference year of around 2030. Um, when our chair, David Thody, met with the uh, group of departmental secretaries uh, a few months ago, he opened up by telling them that they would all be dead by 2030. <laughs> so it was, an, it was an interesting tactic to get them on side. It went okay, though. Uh, anyway, so before I start, um, just to elaborate a little bit on who I am, 
no doubt you're all wondering how our weird Mr Bean looking character wound up running a review of the public service. Good question. So I uh, started as a grad in 2000 in, uh, in the agriculture department. I grew up in Wagga, uh, home of many sporting stars. Not me, sadly, but a great place to grow up in. My dad worked in local government as a clerk, studied at Melbourne Uni Arts with a little bit of law thrown in for luck. And I found myself uh, doing postgrad work at Melbourne Uni and running a bookshop. Uh, this is 1999. I uh, then found myself uh, going, putting myself forward for the public service entrance examination, which turned out to be the last one that was ever offered. And the reason I did that was because my younger brother and I are very competitive and he just finished university and we decided to see who would get the best score. Obviously, you know who got the best score, um, but he's done pretty well too. We both ended up in the public service. So I hadn't really considered a public service career until then, uh, but one thing led to another and yeah, 18 years later, I'm still here. I've worked uh, in three or four different departments, largely on industry policy or related, related issues until now. So as uh, the person heading the secretariat looking after the review of the public service, I haven't been sort of steeped in public sector reform. I've been an interested observer and I have to say sometimes an armchair critic of the APS commission, of secretaries, of ministers, of bureaucracy, of crazy process, of archaic IT, uh, confusing sign-in procedures when you go to a different department, <laughs> car parking instructions, maybe some of these things are just about me, but lots of frustrations. And I've got to admit I haven't really done much about it other than sort of observe and worry about things that were more or I felt were more within my own control. So I've had to get across a lot of history uh, around public sector reform. Uh, Though fortunately I have uh, a team of gurus who uh, are well versed in that history and some of them are here today and obviously wrote that sentence. <laughs> uh, but more, I guess more importantly what, what this role has made me uh, think about is my role not just to heading a, a secretariat but as an APS deputy secretary, uh, as an SES officer in the public service and fundamentally as a public servant. Uh, about what that really means, because um, there are some pretty high expectations set out in our current legislation, never mind what a review does uh, around that legislation. Um, and in fact, it's one of the questions that keeps coming up in this review, how much of what needs to happen in or for the public service actually needs formal agreement from anyone or a decision? How much of it is more about oh, just get on with it and do what you're supposed to do? and how much of it has already been called out in previous reviews. I'll come back to that later. Uh, anyway, so where's the review up to? I'll skip all of the process stuff, fascinating though it is. Um, in terms of the substance, uh, as I mentioned, the terms of reference have placed the review in that 2030 uh, timeframe, uh, the, the notion of a fit for purpose APS for the coming decades. So our panel has looked at 2030 and asked firstly what, well, what would that, what could that look like by then? And then secondly, what will it mean or what might it mean for the APS? And we're about to publish some work on this, some, uh, some mega trends and some potential future scenarios, realistic but a little bit provocative. 
declining trust in major institutions, not something that we're not already familiar with, social and geopolitical instability, an exponential increase in technological advances, changing expectations of customers or clients or people of the public service, and of course the changing nature of work. So we found it a useful framing device, not least because it forces us to try and sort of keep our, our eyes above the horizon and beyond the immediate gripes that inevitably kind of dominate our day-to-day -day thinking, like those sign-in procedures when you go to different departments. Um, and our panel has then framed up what they see as the major issues against that sort of 2030 backdrop. They've, take, they've sort of distilled the major emerging uh, challenges from quite the extensive engagement that we've undertaken and that's all highlighted what David Thody a few weeks ago called a, a vein of frustration. A whole set of concerns that the APS at least risks becoming too reactive, lacking in confidence, with disparate priorities, not fulfilling potential or meeting expectations, with relationships often distrustful or fragile. Uh, struggling to attract, retain, nurture the people we actually need, and with structures, rules and processes that actually inhibit success. It's all a pretty gloomy list, really, when you read it out like that. However, what we've also found is that that's not the case everywhere, and in fact, we're really interested in trying to focus on the, the, the examples of excellence across the service and understanding why and how we might help uh, extrapolate them across, across the APS. Uh, so David, a couple of weeks ago at, at IPA, set out a sort of a vision of the APS of the future, um, an APS of 2030 and beyond that has dealt with those emerging challenges that I mentioned uh, and is actually thriving in that, uh, in that environment. And he talked about five essential end states that the panel has, uh, has decided represent that vision. So firstly, they're interested in an APS that is united in a collective endeavour. So that's the why, about common purpose, how we meet our legislated ob objectives, serving the government, the parliament and the Australian public. It goes to culture, behaviours, values, the role of leaders, secretaries, secretaries board, agency heads, the concept of one APS and what that should mean for decision making and accountability uh, and how much we actually entrench stewardship. Secondly, the panel is looking at an APS that is world-class in its policy, regulation and delivery. So this goes to the what we do, how well we do it. And on the one hand, it's about how we measure and evaluate ourselves against, including against others, but it also goes to, the, uh, to our disposition and our focus on continuous improvement on common and consistent standards and so on. Thirdly, David talked about an APS that is an employer of choice. So this is the who, the hopefully unique value proposition that the APS will be able to pitch between now and 2030. It goes to our investment in people, uh, recruitment processes, training and managing people, uh, how to reflect the diversity of the people we actually serve, how mobile we are those sorts of issues. Fourthly, an APS that is a trusted and respected partner. So this is the with who, the relationships with people, organisations that we need to do our job better, that we need to help inform, support, 
implement or benefit from our work. So this goes to elected representatives, of course, ministers, their staff, states and territories, three cheers for the Federation, <laughs> NGOs, business, academia, and the broader community. And lastly, an APS with dynamic digital and adaptive systems and structures that rolls off the tongue. So this is the how, how we, how we work. Our processes, our rules, our approach to risk, our underpinning or enabling services and functions, our systems, use of data, digital capability, those sorts of issues. So the panel's taken all of that and is now sort of considering and asking, how do we make that sort of vision a reality in 2030? And David Thady and the panel have given various signals, some more subtle than others, about the, uh, the sort of ideas that are being considered. At a high level, uh, they've talked about recommendations that go to, not surprisingly, making the most of finite resources, uh, tailoring solutions for people and places, embracing data and analytics, deploying talent to meet and tackle specific problems, working across organisational boundaries, boosting our transparency, our openness as a service, and engendering a more healthy risk culture. But more specifically, he's talked about, uh, David Thody has talked about ideas like a new uh, service-wide purpose statement with APS decision-making that reflects the purpose statement. Uh, he's talked about a new transparent, accountable performance framework that actually entrenches stewardship, drives behaviour, focuses on outcomes and results. He's talked about a full-scale professionalisation of the public service, potentially drawing on international best practice, uh, including the, the academy style learning models that have uh, been deployed in Singapore and the UK in particular. A new employee value proposition that would be attractive not only to the graduates of 2030, but also mid-career professionals, uh, and that would cater for people moving in and out of the service throughout their careers. And lastly, for now, uh, the idea of a new operating model, which would embed agility and flexibility with new rules, processes around our resources, our people and our funding. So there's some of the ideas that are on the table. It's worth maybe just going back to that, that issue of reforms and recommendations. Uh, our terms of reference talk about the fact that the last equivalent exercise to this one was the uh, Coombs Royal Commission way back in the 70s, the glory years. Um, but in between, there have been lots of reviews, lots of inquiries, uh, and reports into virtually every aspect of uh, the public service. And as you would expect, we've had a good look at many of them, most of them. And they've got some report, this includes reports from some heavy hitters, so some substantial work. Uh, Moran, Shergold, McPhee, Belcher, a whole series of capability reviews a few years ago into, um, into most departments bunch of ANAO work, productivity commission inquiries, parliamentary inquiries, and then a whole raft of APSC publications and other guidance material uh, going back many years, setting out best practice approaches in most of the core aspects of our work. So what's striking about looking across all of that work is that by and large, the themes, the conclusions, and the hundreds 
think 300 plus we've counted, hundreds of recommendations, they still stack up largely. Uh, they're hard to disagree with, or for a review like us, they're hard to ignore. And we're not going to, and in fact, we're probably going to republish some to, uh, to, remind, uh, to remind us all. But this raises for us a very um, obvious but a pretty important question. Why is it that if so many solutions have been identified, they haven't been implemented? Or if they have been implemented, why haven't they stuck? Our hypothesis at this stage, we're open to suggestions, is that the answer lies uh, in the fundamentals. So not to, to take a simple example, not whether greater collaboration across the APS is a good thing, but whether the APS's underlying incentive structures and our authorising environment is such that greater collaboration is anything that people would seriously support or try to facilitate. Unless there's a crisis or unless there are particularly noble people involved. So getting to the heart of that question is really important if you're talking about an APS for 2030 and beyond. And that's one of the reasons why the, our chair has said, uh, with a bit of controversy at the uh, IPA event a few weeks ago, that he was, he thinks the review is unlikely to just list another 50 recommendations and throw them on the table. You must do this, you must do that. Instead, he's pushing us uh, as a secretariat to try and focus the panel on a smaller number of meaningful, bold, changes or transformations is the language that our terms of reference use, uses. They could be simple and meaningful. They could be bold but complicated. They could have been suggested before, but perhaps without an accompanying tweak in the authorising environment to make them stick. Uh, and of course, they could involve a lot of implementation. But it certainly won't mean that we're going to end up with a sort of a vague recommendation one, why can't we all just get along? the sorts of ideas that the panel are grappling with, and I've alluded to a few, if they were implemented, if they stick, they could seriously change life uh, as we know it, as public servants in, uh, in 2030. Um, a couple of reflections on uh, a panel of externals. So I guess the cliche is that private sector types um, see everything very simply, profit loss, they don't get the complexity of the APS, they'll have naive ideas and so on and so forth. Um, well, our panel, firstly, isn't all private sector types. We've got Gordon Dubrow, who, as you all know, a very experienced uh, public servant, including as a secretary um, uh, before he retired, uh, and Glyn Davis, as well as being a very distinguished academic and VC until recently of Melbourne Uni, uh, managed to squeeze in a career as a public servant, including running the Queensland Premier's Department. So we have public sector uh, experience uh, on the panel. But all of the members are, I guess, the, the, in, in our discussions, the first to acknowledge the many differences between public and private sector, the greater levels of ambiguity and uncertainty in which we operate, so they're quite loath to jump to, oh, we should just do it like we do in company X or Y type solutions. But they are very good at spotting nonsense and asking why and demanding data and taking that customer or client <coughs> or people focus when they think their secretariat's indulging in sort of public service navel-gazing. They're also very good at bringing different, pers different perspectives and pushing us to do the same and they're certainly independent. Uh, a couple of other quick observations. Um, firstly, 
We want this review to be relevant for everyone in the APS and indeed beyond the APS, not just the leadership or secretaries or agency heads uh, or sort of highfalutin policy types. We, I think we sometimes forget that most of the public service is outside Canberra and most of it isn't working specifically on policy. So we want to, at the end of this, be able to paint pictures, not literally, uh, of what these transformations could mean in practice for APS and EL staff in any context, how their day-to-day -day working lives could be improved. So that might be through better systems and information, through less time on process and more on substance, through being better managed or a better manager, through being empowered, through being clear on a sense of being part of a community of practice. Uh, secondly, we've had a lot of tremendous support and enthusiasm for the review and for what the panel's been asked to do and for the way they're, they're trying to frame things up. But inevitably there's some cynicism or maybe weariness around this whole question of uh, reforming the, the, the public sector. Um, so we've heard a bit of, oh, we, can't, we, can't be, we couldn't be partners with this stakeholder or we tried that before, well, that's a great idea but it'll never happen because you know, of whatever. It's all largely, it's understandable but we'd rather unpack those sorts of uh, concerns, call out the underlying issues if we need to, and then take them on. Um, which I guess brings me to the elephant in the room, if that's the right metaphor. So what about ministers, politicians, ministerial officers? How can you fix the public service if you don't consider them? Well, of course, the panel is looking closely at those issues. It's, uh, it's, they're fundamental to being a trusted and respected partner for a start. There's a lot of incisive work already published on that topic, loads of personal experiences and reflections that we're drawing on. This review's lens is how the public service can be its very best. So by de definition, really, that includes building, maintaining, improving influence and trust with ministers and their officers. And that, of course, as we all know, is in a, in a much more heated and contested environment. Uh, I think David Doty has talked about a, an important starting point being that common understanding of roles and responsibilities. So we're looking at that and how to embed that sort of understanding and what collectively needs to be done to get there. The historic, the historic context is very important here as well. The traditions of Western liberal democracy and where the various players, including the APS, sit in that tradition. Lastly, to come back to where I began, the role of future leaders. Of course, it's a cliche to say the future is in your hands, but as it turns out, the future is in your hands. <laughs> I haven't talked about culture yet, even though it was on the list, but clearly, alongside whatever specific changes a review like this suggests and are implemented, it's the attitude, the motivation, the disposition, the culture of the APS and particularly its leaders, current but particularly future, that's largely going to determine success or failure. So we think this is a, a unique opportunity, at least unique since the 70s. Uh, we're encouraging everybody to get involved. We've got a, an online engagement platform up and running which is working through those end states that I mentioned earlier. Uh, we're encouraging departments and agencies to keep debating these issues within their organisations. They've been provided material to that effect, so if it's not happening where you work, you should ask why, or better still do it yourself. We've closed our, we had a formal sort of capital S submissions period that closed a few months ago, but we're, we're certainly not closed for business. Uh, we won't be reporting until middle of next year, 
and we'll be testing ideas uh, before then. It will be done iteratively. The, the panel's been very clear in, that, in its preference to develop this, this work together, to publish what it's hearing and reading, to check in with people, to minimise surprise, uh, and to provide plenty of opportunities to contribute. So if you have some thoughts, or your colleagues have some thoughts, or IPA has some more thoughts, I've already got a submission from IPA, uh, please let us know. Particularly, as I say, with a view to those end states, that 2030 focus, and those underlying questions of incentives and disincentives and authorising environment. Because for me, those are the issues that are at the, the heart of the review. What small lever should we pull over here to make something over there stick? The other point I'd make, I guess, is to just get involved more broadly. Um, don't be like me, which is a good piece of advice in general, but particularly don't sit on the sidelines and complain or sort of have, you know, have opinions. Get involved. We've had several of the APS leaders recently who've made the point, on the one hand, welcoming the review, welcoming the way it's framing up, but also saying, don't wait for it. Don't wait for the review. Let's not sort of wait for David Thody to hand down the whatever it is that people hand down. If something can be done now, you know, why wait for the review? Including, I suppose, bemoaning sign-in procedures across departments. We really should get stuck into that. Some sort of common platform would be a good idea. Anyway, that's all I had. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. So, David, if I can ask you to take a seat and Holly, um, you can sit wherever you like or you can stand. It's entirely up to you. Uh, um, so uh, Holly from IP Australia is going to start the discussion, but obviously you know, what, what we've heard is this is about getting involved and getting stuck in. So this is an excellent opportunity to, uh, to do both of those things. Uh, so Holly, I'll give you a signal when I think we, the audience <coughs> will not be held back any longer. But until then, over to you. Well, that sounds good. Thank you. Just push as far Just as you can one way. Yeah. Mm. Comes to something when you've got an academic helping you out. <laughs> Technological proficiency is vital for the leaders. So it's on, yeah. Well, yeah. David, thank you very much. I'd like to reiterate on behalf of the Future Leaders Committee how grateful we are that you gave your time to join us this afternoon. Um, that was really fantastic. Um, we went out to the committee and asked for um, selection of questions and we're quite overwhelmed at the response so it's a curated collection of some of mm -hmm. the questions today um, to make sure that we've got time uh, for audience as well. So our first uh, question is around that theme of uh, dynamic digital and adaptive systems and structures. So we had um, a couple of our members recently spend some time in the ministerial offices um, and they're interested, how do you think the political environment impacts on the public service ability to be dynamic digital and adaptive, particularly with increasingly low political appetite for risk and a lack of willingness to invest in the public service. Could a more independent public role in service delivery, regulation and policy development allow the public service to operate with a more considered risk profile and interact with citizens in a more efficient and transparent way? That's 17 questions. <laughs> I know. I, I told you they couldn't stop. They were just they were very excited. Right, well, uh, so you have to remind me of the bits of that, but uh, one bit that sticks out is the, uh, you know, a more independent APS. Mm. So certainly the panel's having a look at that whole question of independence and the, the balance between serving the government of the day 
and the longer-term stewardship role. Uh, they are both in the Public Service Act as it currently stands. So there's, to some extent, the job is to reconcile the two, not mm. sort of, you know, to sort of head necessarily in a different direction. Um, I think uh, a review like this is an opportunity, as I said, to sort of just remind people of, of the, the historic context of the APS, uh, the enduring institution, mm. the, um, uh, the, 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 the sort of collective memory um, with, of government and of success, for government and for successive governments, and I'd expect that's what the panel uh, will do. Um, and as I said, there's a, a purpose statement sort of element of, uh, that, that they're looking at, so I suspect that will, mm. that will get a run. Um, I think... So, so, so my, my reaction on that, on that whole topic is that the onus is still in the first instance on the public service to get stuck in, to step up to make it so that this question of how can we be agile given the political environment, well, why don't we be agile within the political environment? Um, uh, are we absolutely sure that we as, a, as an organisation, a single APS, are structured the right way, operating the right way? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why, um, imposing the right rules on ourselves, forget what the politicians do, to enable that sort of agility and that flexibility. And this comes back to uh, what I was saying before, how much needs to be um, uh, authorised or agreed by a government and how much of this is really the onus is on us to step up. So I think that's, that's a big part of it. Uh, but equally, um, uh, we all know that the political environment is much more contested, controversial, short-term media cycles, et cetera, et cetera. It seems to be here to stay. Uh, again, if you look back over the sort of the, the, the Westminster tradition, it's not a thing that's ever been fixed in stone. It does evolve mm-hmm. to suit the, the sort of the dynamic, uh, you know, the dynamic of the time, and I suspect that's where we are now. And if anything, to me, that, that the reality of the political environment sort of accentuates that need for a, a vibrant strong, sort of confident, David Thurdy uses that word a lot, confident public service, um, but isn't too worried about some of those issues, but is sort of confident enough to be standing up, to, put it, to be putting uh, considered views forward, to be very cognizant and responsive to the government of the day, but also cognizant of its view, of its role serving successive governments. Do you think the risk appetite of the public service at the moment in the environment of the current review is different from the last time we had a review of this scale? And is that having an impact? Uh, well, I don't know the environment in the 70s, not quite. Um, mm. But I think uh, we've heard a lot... I mean, risk, risk appetites come up a lot and there's mm. clearly, um, again, forget where, in the first instance, where ministers or governments are up to, just within the APS itself, we hear lots of stories about people be feeling disempowered, particularly, frankly, at the APS and EL levels. Mm. Things that were once decisions for an EL1 to take, it's now an SES1 or 2. 
sort of creeping, creeping upwards. And uh, we've looked at, you know, the panel is looking at ways to address that. Mm. The sort of, I think, arguably too hierarchical nature of our organisation in a contemporary world. If you look at other organisations, again, private sector doesn't always have the answers. Mm. But if you've got 55 layers of management, it's difficult to see how that can mean that you're responsive and agile. So I think that's something that, uh, that the, the panel's looking closely at. One of our panel members in a speech that preceded the review uh, uh, suggested getting rid of one layer of SES. Yay! <laughs> okay. Um, that question was from uh, Alyssa Sabatucci and Shona Boyle. Does that, um, I suppose, address the, the theme of what you were getting at? Remind me of the early bits. They're running around taking pictures. I think probably. Okay, yes. cool. um, we, uh, in terms of another theme, in terms of the um, Australian Public Service truly being an employer of choice, mm. we'll arguably continue to compete for the best and brightest. And you mentioned um, an employee value proposition, which may absolutely go somewhere towards mm. addressing that. <coughs> but our recruitment processes and our workforce mobility. The processes are quite long and they're often poorly targeted. How do we balance speed with due diligence, especially in a world where panels have competing time pressures? And does this disadvantage us in terms of competing with private sector for talent? Well, I think we've heard that, to answer the last part first, that yes, it does disadvantage us. Mm. So we've, uh, we've done some consultations again with private sector with some of the sort of employment agencies and advertising companies um, about their perceptions of how the APS markets itself versus everybody else, but particularly some of our, you know, competitors. Mm -hmm. And it's chalk and cheese. They, one sort of, in one meeting it was sort of posed to us that it, it is as if the APS is, try, is trying not to get <laughs> the people it really wants. Okay. We're not even sort of, uh, in some respects, not even conceptualising ourselves as part of a broader labour, a labour market. Mm. Um, so that really affects the sort of the, uh, the approach to recruitment uh, and also come back to the point about um, uh, reflecting the people that we serve, that's also a, you know, that's a, that's a major issue. So I think the panel's looking at that. In terms of um, the processes being long, but does that mean, is that essential in order uh, for it to be fair? I mean, I don't think so. I don't know what others think. Um, but I suspect that you can maintain the necessary integrity around recruitment processes without them being as tortuous and, um, uh, and long and, and disenfranchising in some respects as they are, as they are currently. It is true. Whenever you're asked to be on a recruitment panel, you do get a bit of a funny look of, oh, do I yeah. have to? I'm going to lose three days. Yeah. And I so guess I'm going to... That I'm going to stop you in terms of... So I won't stop you, cut you off, but I think I need to stop you no, because we sense. need to involve the audience, if that's OK. Absolutely. Um, but Can I, you, oh, I was yes. just going to say, the other, the other point on that is, if you, again, you go out to 2030, if you look at the, the trends now about what the graduates of today, how they conceive a career mm. or careers, um, are our processes sort of aligned to that? Are they aligned to it now, let alone what it will be like in sort of 12 or 15 mm. years? There's a, there's a massive... Um, discrepancy there, I think. Okay. Holly, David, thank you both for now. Um, Holly's going <laughs> to stay where um, she is. We're going to go back to uh, the questions. So um, I know that you're going to have some questions, but up on the 
I'm going to get you to vote on something else. Um, uh, so the second question we're going to ask. Favorite you secretary. <laughs> now we did that. Uh -huh. um, so what? What is a realistic contribution that you can make as a future leader to the APS's re the APS reviews vision fit for purpose? So this is this speaks to David's point about getting stuck in and getting involved. So these are your options: consider different ways of working, lead and inspire others to make change, seek out development opportunities, start a conversation, familiarise yourself with emerging technologies. So nobody wants to vote for any of them. Oh. <laughs> She says. So it'll take a little while to come through, but it'll be good to just get a sense of, wow, okay. Oh, right, oh, technology. Global too. Well, it seems that technology, research and global trends is definitely ahead and everything else is pretty much of a muchness so we think all of these things are important but we clearly think that emerging technologies research and global trends are the thing to to be concerned about so probably not a surprise um, but I wonder if I might take the opportunity, David, to, mm. uh, to just have the first question. You know, so where's, you, you were saying this is about, you know, this isn't about you, it's about the people in the room, because um, they're going to be the future leaders. How, how embedded is the next generation in the review? Because with the best will in the world, you know, it's, for me, the question is not whether it's public or private sector, but all of the people on the panel yeah, that's true. Oh. They're not the future leaders? They're not the future leaders. No. So what, you know, and given, you know, that one of the things that this group seems to be saying is, um, you know, we know about technology and we can, we can make a contribution to that. I suppose my question is, how involved are they mm. anyway? Mm. Well, uh, I mean, they are involved and we've had various sort of sessions, roundtables. I, I didn't really do the process stuff, but maybe I should have. We've run sort of 30 odd uh, so far workshops around the country, three or 400 people looking at my team, uh, again at the, in the future leaders sort of cohort and where in fact the outcomes of that work are being presented to the panel in some detail uh, in a fortnight. So we've tried to sort of capture the, the voice that way. As I said, we've got, we've got as a sort of the next phase and a, a platform for engagement. Um, uh, we have a team in the secretariat present, me excluded, uh, who, who are in the cohort that you're talking about and are obviously having their say. Um, but I think it's, a, I mean, it, that's an ongoing and open question. Mm. So it comes back to, I guess, where I ended. We mm. do want to keep, uh, keep those voices prominent. It is easy to end up in sort of slightly esoteric conversations, conversations pitched at, again, the very senior levels currently. Mm. Um, so we're trying to work against that, but we kind of need help and ammunition to do so. Mm. Yeah, okay. Well, you're being invited to provide that ammunition. So we've got a couple of microphones. Um, who would like to ask a question? Yes, you sir. The next person to ask a question will be a woman, so be prepared. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes, okay. 
to answer your first question that you posed to us, mm. uh, my favourite secretary ever, apart from my current one, <laughs> Drew, yes. The, the second and the question for A very uh, a, a successful public servant who also had a pretty important role at the, on the political side as well. Yes. And has got lots of great stories to tell. I think most people could hear anyway, so I'll just keep going. Uh, so he strongly believed in developing his staff, and he did radical things like supporting the use of augmented reality within the department mm. and using... He believed you just didn't provide advice about tech, you needed to be a good user of tech to understand its capabilities. But the minute he left, and I've since moved to a different department, there's radically different views from the senior exec. Mm. So how do we sort of foster that excellence and that development and that use of tech? when we've got this resistance from the very people that are meant to drive the change? Good question. Good question. <laughs> oh, should I? I should yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, That's the general uh, yeah, idea. Sorry, I misunderstood. <laughs> um, so firstly, Drew is someone we're talking to. The panel is talking, has talked to him several times and that will continue for, the, for, re, for many reasons, including what you've just alluded to. Uh, to me, it comes back to, I'll be boring here, the, in, the incentives that we're putting in place that drive our leaders. So what is the, at the moment, what is the consequence of not taking a Drew Clark approach? What, how accountable are our leaders for not doing that? How is it called out? Um, how, is it, how is their performance managed effectively? And their organisation's performance? Uh, to me, if you go back to fundamentals on the, on the, on the way, you're sort of what, what leadership you're valuing and what you're not valuing and making that clear to all and sundry, that's a really important part of it. And I think the other element is, it comes back to, again, broken record, it's the future leaders. It's what sort of leaders you're nurturing for the future. And hopefully, if we get the sort of the fundamentals right that we've talked about this afternoon, that that cohort, this cohort, coming through, have got the disposition that you've just outlined, and we don't have to have this conversation. But we've got to get it embedded right up front and not wait until someone becomes a secretary and say, oh, it'd be great if you could really get into this whole digital thing. Too late, I reckon. And it sort of also goes to why would people want to come and work for an organisation that Indeed. doesn't appear to... The employee value proposition, yeah. So it all connects, eh? As the M. Foster exactly said. Right. OK, so <laughs> who's right. the woman who's going to ask the next question? Well, yeah, thank you. Remember, your future leaders. It's not just the men in the room that are future leaders. Um, hi, David. Fellow Wagarian. It's nice to meet you. Um, I have a question around... So the point that came up before is um, that people are really interested in the research and the international trends around mm. jurisdictions that are doing transformation really well. Yes. Um, and I'd be really interested to know from what you've been working through with the panel, like... Like, who, who is a good model of mm. practice in this space and who's kind of ahead of the curve in terms of embracing millennials and executive and um, embracing digital change? Yeah. Um, are there people doing it well or uh, are everyone a bit daddy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I think the answer is uh, 
in, uh, in certain areas, this is a boring answer, certain areas, certain countries are doing things well and others, we're, we're ahead. And so what we're trying to do is, you know, plagiarise shamelessly the best bits. So we've looked particularly, you know, at the sort of the, the roughly analogous heuristic, you know, so Canada, uh, New Zealand, the UK, we also have forgot, Singapore. They've all got some differences but some similarities. And, of course, our own state, the, the states and territories here. And um, they're all broadly, I think, tackling the same, the same problems but have sort of got ahead in certain areas. So I mentioned the kind of the professionalisation of the service is a big theme in the UK and Singapore. Um, maybe it's a bit easier to do in Singapore, but anyway, they've, you know, there are some things we can, we can uh, learn there. Um, our observation is the, the, um, the sense of a one public service in New Zealand is, is, is very strong. Uh, the, the, the clear understanding of respective roles and responsibilities, including you know, with ministers and so on, is sort of perhaps more clearly delineated there. So we're, so we're looking at that. Um, but everybody, I mean, yes, yeah, so, so, so there's no one, no one perfect model. Uh, but lots of, lots of good lessons. And part of our consultation process, we've got a reference group of public sector experts globally who we've convened recently, we're talking to regularly, and there's a lot of literature uh, on this as well. But again, it is, it is, uh, uh, it's very important. Again, it comes back to not just trying to reinvent the wheel for the sake of it. There are good ideas out there. How can we adapt them and apply them here? We're keen to do that. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I just wanted some thoughts on how, how is the APS review or generally um, APS thinking about embedding um, research skills. Um, it's, it's generally, uh, you know, a lot of public servants are going out to do PhD and when they go back into the public mm. service, how do you, how do you uh, embed that within the culture because it's the, the culture generally is generalist and specialist. Yeah. Are are um, here and there, but how do you how do you embed that, and 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 what is the APS review thinking yeah. on this? Yeah. Uh, so I guess there are a couple of aspects to this. Um, uh, formally, in terms of embedding focus and, and sort of regard for research, I mean the panel's aware of the fact that there are a number of research bureaus across the public service, but not as many as there used to be, and that's interesting. Um, and they're looking at why that might be the case and what, what might need to do about that. Um, but in terms of the more broadly that, that culture, I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right. This, this goes to the, sort of the world-class end state. What is it that informs, needs to underpin, or well, world-class policy delivery and um, regulation, really, but let's just start with policy. And I think there's a sense that, that uh, yes, we've got a lot of generalists, very good at the reactive day-to-day you know, immediate responsive stuff, um, but the longer term, sort of more considered research uh, uh, isn't given as much of a, of a priority. And the, the question is also then how much that's integrated into the day-to-day work of, of everybody else. So they're certainly looking at that, different models. Um, but also, again, if you're professionalising your service, then I think you would assume that a professionalised public service would have that sort of, those sorts of characteristics front and centre... Um, so that's sort of, that's our lens into into that into that topic. Okay. I know you. I can 
<laughs> you would, absolutely. <laughs> no, we're going, we're doing the gender thing. It's weird, I know. <laughs> Um, I have a couple of things that I'd like to say is be careful with technology. That is the thing that slowed down my last recruitment um, yes. process. It was the use of the system. I could have done it so much quicker if I'd had a manual system. That was my first comment. Um, my, I have a, a question around collaboration and what has the panel come up with in incentivising being a meerkat, looking around and collaborating with other parts of the public service. Mm. I'm trying to run a program of reform within our enabling divisions within the Department of Environment. I didn't introduce myself, sorry. I'm Jeanette Corbett from the Department of Environment and Energy. And um, I can't even get my own branch, you know, directors within my own branch to actually talk to each other and work together on Indigenous engagement. So right. how... Have you got any good ideas on incentivising for collaboration across the APS? Uh, yes. Um, well, it's certainly uh, sort of a fundamental question. So the, operate, so the panel is looking at operating model, the APS, to use the jargon. And there's a temptation when you do that that you immediately go to structures. Well, let's just recap departments, so, you know, MOG equivalents. But everybody knows that is, you know, resource intensive and takes too much time, and then five minutes later, you'd do it a different way anyway. So that's not necessarily the answer. It's more about the, 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 the disposition to collaborate, you know, uh, in the first place, regardless of where you sit, <coughs> which organisation you sit in. Uh, so, they, so they are looking at that. Again, I've, I've sort of... This came up in another question, but it, it comes back to what we, um, what we require of, you know, of our... Uh, particularly of our leaders and our, you know, and our, and our managers, um, and what is recognised and rewarded, and you know, I think we've heard at the moment there's it's the, the 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 pendulum is, despite the fact that the legislation says we're we're an APS, that the, the there are greater incentives, often to not to not do that collaboration because you you know will will I, you know. And in, in fact, it's almost a, it can be a disincentive at times. So we're all very much like this. So it's the whole silo, the whole silo thing. So I think the panel is interested in trying to really flip that on its head and say, no, no, no. What you should be encouraging and what you should be cultivating and nurturing are the sort of people who bring to their teams or create and create teams where that is that is the BAU, not the just worrying about, you know, straight up the line. But that also has to start at the top because if secretaries themselves are incentivised to do that, well, you know, you're cactus. So it's quite a quite a fundamental shift. But they're very uh, they're very focused on it, and you know, I've heard it's one of the real inhibitors. And I guess just one more thing on that: that greater collaboration doesn't sort of mean we all become one homogenous again sort of kumbaya <laughs> unit. I mean, there's a there's a healthy and necessary competition and contestability of ideas that we're great at, but. It, the healthy bit is the, is the key aspect there, not just contestability for the sake of it or sort of trying to, you know, get one over Department X or Branch Y, you know, or Branch Y. So I think you, I mean, you're really going to the heart of what they're, you know, what they're grappling with. Okay, I think we've got time for one more question. Yes. And if it can be a short question, that would be great. <laughs> 
Um, I was just wondering whether the panel has been doing any thinking around, I guess, exit strategies for public servants. I guess you're talking a lot about what we can do to get new talent in, but I know, like, sorry to bring up something. You're trying boring. to say something? No, no, no. no. <laughs> but I guess you know, <laughs> we work within the. Um, confines currently of the ASL cap, yeah. which means, you know, as much as we'd love to bring in new talent, you can't mm, unless, mm, you, you know, you mm. have people leaving and you don't always have the people leaving that you want to be leaving. Yeah. And I guess, sorry, um, but also in the context of, I guess, the changing expectations of, you know, younger graduates who do see themselves having multiple careers, I guess one of the things we probably need to think about is how we can get people to come in and out of the public service and do that in, in an easier way than we currently do, which seems to be like voluntary redundancies or, you know, other career opportunities which we don't really um, champion ourselves. So I just wondered if you've done any thinking on that. Yes. Um, so a couple of elements to this. Firstly, for, for people who are more at the end, towards the end of their careers, not because of underperformance, but because you know, they've, they're almost finished. Uh, again, there's the, what happens to them? What happens to their institutional knowledge and memory? We're very bad at that. Um, and again, you go out 15 years, even longer lives, people working longer anyway. How we sort of, um, A, make work as rewarding as we can for, for that cohort, but secondly, have an institutional benefit is something they're, they're, um, they're very interested in. But on the uh, people moving in and out of the service, so that's certainly something that I think they've already settled that their vision, you know, that, that employee value proposition has to include the notion of a, uh, a career that involves several steps outside the public service or it might be a step into a minister's office to work as an advisor for a couple of years, a step into a state jurisdiction, a step overseas to either learn or to, um, you know, or to work in, in public service. Uh, business, NGOs, wherever. The history is on that. There's lots of good intentions around that, mobility in and out, a couple of programs, um, also within the service. But again, they never, they never really stick. And they're kind of a little bit, you know, it's a bit voluntary um, and a bit reliant on people being playing nicely and all that sort of stuff. Well, that's, that's not going to get us where we want to go. So again, it's how you institutionalise as a negative connotation, but make that part of the, part of the landscape. Uh, in a way that it's not currently. And again, that comes back to a clear... The notion of being a public servant as a profession, what does that mean fundamentally? Well, it means all of that. It means a continuous learning and development. It means being licensed and sanctioned and indeed expected to be going out and getting other experiences and developing the capability. That's actually what's required rather than somebody saying, hey, I've had a wacky idea. I might want to go and work in business for a couple of years. <laughs> so, so that's, again, the flip that the, that the panel's looking at. Does that make sense? And I think we're, we're going to have to stop there, but that's a, a great place to, to end in the sense that, um, you know, IPA is all about the public service as a profession um, and recognising that, you know, there are multiple professions within that, but um, one thing we all share is a commitment to public service. And so this, this idea of how do we maintain that um, while at the same time ensuring that the people who are the future leaders have the kind of experiences that, that David's talking about, I think is really important. And if I might make one suggestion, which um, seems to me that the future leaders group would be really well positioned to take up, and David may not welcome this at all, but it did <laughs> seem to me that um, 
in terms of the, the engagement, one, one option for, for IPA and the future leaders um, might be to form some kind of shadow panel. So, you know, one of the things David was talking about was, well, we're doing all this engagement and consultation, but at some point, the discussions, because they come back to people who have done things previously who are not at the forefront, just in terms of technology, apart from anything else, um, those conversations are necessarily going to be constructed in a particular way. I think a group of future leaders as a shadow panel would have a very different conversation. So I, I have no idea whether this is possible. I have no idea how it might work. Um, but I certainly think it's something that we as IPA council members should be thinking about. And indeed, Crawford School would be um, really keen to, to help with. But um, it does seem to me that uh, there are, you know, if we're thinking about being innovative and how, I'm thinking about how we might institutionalize some of these changes in the way that David, Thody, and um, David Williamson are suggesting, then perhaps what we need is, a, is an alternative way of thinking about um, how we would implement. And a shadow board might be one way of doing that. Uh, and it's very much in the, in the mold of um, you know, having mentoring that, that's reversed. So rather than you know, people like David Stanton mentoring me, um, you know, somebody even younger than me would mentor David. Um, you know, it seems counterintuitive, but actually it can be really, really effective. So. Um, there's just some ideas I think that we at EPA might need to, to think about. Anyway, um, that's for the future. For now, um, just a couple of things to say. Firstly, um, before I do the formal thank yous, firstly, uh, there is a reception in Ivy and the Fox, which is just down the way. If you are able to stay uh, for a bit of networking and some nibbles, uh, please do. We'd be delighted to, um, to, to welcome you into the Ivy and Fox, those of you who don't know it. Um, the... Other thing to say is thank you all for attending. Um, it's at this point I need to acknowledge our uh, sponsors, KPMG, Hayes, Telstra, Minter Ellison, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, and Microsoft, all of whom will provide great support to, to ACT. Uh, but obviously the most important per person to thank is, is you, David, for, for giving up the time, um, for answering those questions so generously and really being prepared to think about um, what it is that people are, are asking you and, and how you might respond. We're uh, incredibly grateful to you. And we have a small gift, which you're very lucky to have, actually, because it's chocolate, which is my favourite, but apparently I have to give it to you. You do. So, <laughs> thank, thank you very you much. So no much. Thank Thanks you so much. Thanks, everyone. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com